Is it lawn mowing day in DC? Okay. It is. And I think most of the jackhammering has stopped. I have some construction going on above me too, which you might hear. Beautiful. <laughs> Welcome to work from home 19 months in. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drake. Back in August, President Biden's approval rating appeared to be falling in tandem with a rise in COVID-19 cases and reports about the United States' chaotic withdrawal in Afghanistan. Since then, Afghanistan has faded from headlines and COVID-19 cases have fallen significantly. But Americans' view of Biden's job performance has not improved. He's now underwater with the American public, with more people disapproving of his performance than approving of it. Today, we're going to talk about why that is, what the consequences are for Democrats, and what they can do about it. We're also going to take a look at a new report published by 538 Today about how Congress may have inadvertently legalized THC, the main psychoactive compound in marijuana. American history is riddled with laws that didn't always work out quite as intended. The 2018 Farm Bill is one of them. And of course, we're going to have a good use or bad use of polling example that will bring us to Virginia, where two weeks before Election Day, the governor's race is looking very competitive. Here with me to discuss our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Also with us is managing editor, Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hello, Galen. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Glad you're here. Nate is uh, still on a gambling trip. Sorry, I mean, I mean, uh, book research in Las Vegas. We look forward to talking with you, Nate, when you make it back. And good luck with all of your book research. But let's begin with our favorite question, which is good use of polling or bad use of polling. And here it is. Last week, the Washington Examiner published a write-up of a poll of the Virginia governor's race done by the Republican Governors Association. The headline read, Private Republican polling in Virginia suggests GOP poised to sweep. And the story goes on to say, quote, Republican Glenn Youngkin led Democrat Terry McAuliffe in an internal Republican Governors Association poll conducted early this month, putting the GOP on the precipice of winning a major statewide race in Virginia for the first time in a dozen years. Youngkin led McAuliffe by a narrow three percentage points with a month to go in this key off-year campaign. But Youngkin was losing to McAuliffe by 11 points in RGA polling from May. And the trend line suggests to Republican operatives working the race that the GOP is on track to win the contest for lieutenant governor and attorney general and possibly to recapture the Virginia General Assembly. Okay, that's the end of the opening two paragraphs of that write-up. Just going to get to it. Is this a good or bad use of polling? Bad. Bad. All right, that was... Easier than usual. (laughs) Very bad. It's straightforward in the sense that it's bad because you don't want to rely on internal campaign polls to understand a race. In fact, when we were looking back at U.S. House polls from 1998 to 2014, we found that on average they overestimated the candidate's performance by four to five points. So that's why this poll is bad. It's just you don't want to rely on an internal poll, particularly in a race like this where you actually have a lot of high quality public facing polls. Yeah. And just to add to that, there's sort of like a double sin here, which is the problem with relying on an internal campaign poll isn't so much the poll itself, although there can be some problems there. It's that usually you're only seeing one poll among many. So in this case, you have the GOP in Virginia doing a lot of polling. And for whatever reason, we're getting reports about this one poll and comparisons to previous poll conducted. So it's like, to go back to our professor polls metaphor, this poll is like blindly pulling a green M&M out of a jar of M&Ms and then concluding that the whole jar is green. We know that this poll is green with this M&M, but it's not a reliable way to make any guesses or assumptions about what the rest of the jar looks like. The thing that, that really makes this a double sin in my eyes is the whole thing rests on the comparison to the earlier internal poll. And it seems to be that the suggestion is basically like McCullough was up, now Yunkin is up. So the trend line is moving towards Yunkin and will continue to do so. That's like the implicit suggestion, right? One, that suggestion isn't empirically sound. 
in when you're looking at poles of arrays, because a trend has been moving in in one direction, does not guarantee that it will continue to move in that direction. But the other thing is, because these are internal poles, you're drawing a trend line between two points, but we have no idea what all the other points in the sample are because they've been doing a lot of polls that have not been made public. So for all we know, there's this one poll showing McCulloch ahead, this other poll now showing Yunkin ahead by three points. But in the middle, maybe there were 15 polls showing McCulloch up by 15 or 15 polls showing Yunkin up by 15. It's just a bad use of polling on many fronts. So I want to get to maybe what the better use of polling is, which, of course, is averaging all of the public polls to give us a picture of what the race actually looks like. But before we get to that good use of polling, let's stick on this bad use of polling for a second. Why even release this poll? Like, if you're looking at the public polling, you see that it's a competitive race. Why would you want to come out of the gate saying, oh, we're so confident not only is Yunkin going to win, the lieutenant governor candidate's also going to win, we may well take the general assembly don't you want to create a sense of urgency? When internal polls get released, we usually assume that there's some kind of motive behind it. What's the motive here? We said that this is a bad use of polling, but the race has tightened. We launched our polling average using polls starting in August, and at that point, it showed McAuliffe leading by nearly seven points. Right now, he has a two-point lead. To be clear, that doesn't mean that Yunkin is in the lead, as this poll suggested, but the race has tightened. And also what we have found in some polls is when you ask voters how enthusiastic are they about casting their ballot this November, Republican voters do have an edge there. To be clear, you know, you don't have to be enthusiastic to count a ballot. That doesn't mean Democrats won't turn out to vote. But it does suggest that I think the reason why Republicans wanted to release this poll is to suggest to voters like, look, the race has tightened. We are not only going to maybe have the potential to win the governorship, but this counts for down ballot races. There's always a motive behind why internal polls are released. And I think this one is them playing on the race is getting tighter. Look how much we could win. Be excited to turn out to vote. That's at least how I read this poll. The other thing, though, and maybe the irony here is if you just ignore the use of polling and you read according to these GOP operatives that the Washington Examiner talked to, their read of the race, their read of the race, as Sarah said, actually isn't all that different than the public polls suggest. It's, it's a close race. The article quotes, Republicans reviewing the data blame Biden and his sinking job approval ratings, especially with independents and suburban men. Although Youngkin advisors say the quality of the GOP nominee, combined with McCulloch's missteps, deserve equal credit for the potential Democratic collapse. So ignore the Democratic collapse part of that. Certainly there's a potential for it, but there's no real reason to, to anticipate that over other outcomes. The rest of that, I think, is right. I think Biden's declining approval rating is a problem for McCulloch. I think McCulloch has made a couple of these missteps. The idea that Biden and their former McCulloch have leaked support among independents, suburban men in particular. All that seems right to me. We are not presenting a forecast of this election. We just show the polling average. And currently, according to our polling average, McAuliffe is up by 2.9 points. And of course, that, that has trended down for him over the past couple months or so. We've gotten questions about this over the past couple weeks. At this point, maybe without having an actual forecast, how likely does it seem that Youngkin wins this? Totally plausible. I mean, to be clear, not to nitpick, but McAuliffe's lead has been at about three points now since the beginning of September. So basically the last month and a half or so. So at least since then, we haven't really seen the race tighten. So that actually is one way in which the public polling differs from at least the implicit suggestion in this Washington Examiner article. But look, if McAuliffe is up three... I think you'd call him a, a very, very modest favorite. This is always something I think the media and the public struggle with, is how do, how do you communicate a 60% favorite or a 65% favorite or a 70% favorite? That is someone who has an advantage, but is going to lose pretty often. That's where this race is now. Hillary Clinton in 2016 was up by about this much, right, in pre-election polling, nationally. When it's a tight race like this is when... People start looking at polling history, start looking for examples of why the polls might be off a little bit in this direction or that direction. I mean, do we have any broader polling history context 
for how accurate the polls are in Virginia, if they have over or underestimated a particular candidate in the past, or even if whoever the incumbent president is, since this is one of the first big blockbuster races after a newly elected president takes office, do we have data on this looking back through history? One thing we do know is that Virginia isn't a particularly great barometer for where the midterm environment will be next year. And McAuliffe is actually in this situation before in 2013. You know, he was running for governor then under a Democratic president. And at that point, Obama also had an approval rating in the mid 40s. So very similar to where Biden was, but McAuliffe won. And it was actually the first time that that happened, where the same party in the White House won the governorship in Virginia since 1973. So McAuliffe has been an underdog before. And you have to keep in mind, Virginia was a lot more red as a state then than it is now, right? So that is a vote in McAuliffe's favor. That said, though, right now we have a president in the White House who is unpopular, and we have seen that play out in Virginia as well. You know, right now in our polling average, as you said at the outset there, Galen, Biden's about five points underwater on net nationally. And that's true in Virginia as well. Like two recent polls there showed him at about four points underwater and then three points underwater. So maybe a little bit better than the national polls suggest, but roughly in line. And so then that, you know, could present a situation for Youngkin here to overperform Virginia's increasingly blue partisan lean and perhaps inch out a squeaker. I think what's difficult, though, and I think the approximation that Micah gave around like the 60-40 split is probably a great way to think about this race in the sense that McAuliffe, given Virginia's history, probably has the advantages here to win, but it's not by any means, you know, a done deal for him. Like the political environment is one that is favorable to Republicans in the state and could edge out McAuliffe. It's never a good idea to try to outguess the polling. We could sit here and list a bunch of reasons why McAuliffe will overperform his polls. There's some recent history, for example, of Democrats overperforming their polls in blue states. Virginia has become a relatively blue state. There's certainly a light blue. There's even some recent history in Virginia of the Democratic candidate overperforming their polls in just this kind of situation. You know, at the same time, we could list a bunch of reasons that Duncan might overperform. We also have a recent history of pollsters having trouble capturing a certain segment of the Republican electorate. So it's just never a good idea to try to outguess the polls. There are reasons to think it could go either way. Wrapping up here, you mentioned, Micah, some of the quotes in that Washington Examiner piece that were trying to explain why Youngkin is in a better position than you might have otherwise expected. And one of them was candidate quality. Of course, this is interesting because the Republican Party decided not to hold statewide primaries in Virginia this year. Instead, party insiders essentially cast ballots at a state convention. And they did that in part because they didn't want a overly Trump-aligned candidate to win and run in a statewide race in a state like Virginia that has been trending blue. And their bet was if people more involved in the state party can get this guy, Yunkin, who may appeal to independents, maybe some people who voted for Biden in 2020, that Yunkin may have a better chance of getting elected as this moderate cross-pressure appeal type of candidate. So that's one reason that maybe this race is a little bit closer than it might otherwise have been. Are there other issues on the ground that have shaped this race? Yeah. So one thing Jeffrey Skelly looked at last week in his write-up of the Virginia race were some of the different issues. And I think what stood out to me is on the question of who would handle COVID-19 better, McAuliffe had the voters' approval there. And the majority of voters in Virginia support like companies implementing a vaccine mandate for their workers. But other than that issue, when it comes to creating jobs, voters were more likely to think Yunkin would do better on this than McAuliffe. When it came to reducing violent crime, there was a 10-point gap in voters thinking Youngkin would do better on this. And then on the question of like critical race theory and what is being taught in schools, most Virginians, again, thought parents should have more of a say than school boards. And it's kind of become a rallying point in that race because in one of the debates, there's a clip of McAuliffe saying, you know, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. That's been taken out of context by the Youngkin campaign. But it is potentially an issue here in the race that works in Youngkin's favor. I think the biggest question 
revelation for me, particularly following the California recall, is we saw the importance that COVID-19 played in voters' decision on who to vote for, right? It was their number one issue. Will that be true in Virginia? If it is, I think that's an argument in favor of McAuliffe. If there are other issues, say the economy is a greater concern in Virginia, perhaps that plays to Youngkin's advantage. But I thought that was telling that of the kind of major issues that people are looking at Virginia as a microcosm for 2022 on, on crime, on jobs, on critical race theory, I thought it was interesting that at least on those, Youngkin seems to have the advantage among voters, whereas when it comes to COVID-19, that is by far McAuliffe's strongest issue. Those other issues are are relatively close, though, right? The crime one was a 10-point difference. And again, I think to what extent then are voters actually thinking that crime is high in their area? Is that the number one issue for them? Like, that's not clear to me. But I thought the gap between McAuliffe and Youngkin there was pretty large. Totally fair. And the way I've been thinking about sort of is like, their numbers and, you know, polls asking, like, who do you trust more? Their numbers actually pretty even on education, pretty even on the economy. But as Sarah says, Youngkin has a bigger advantage on crime and McAuliffe has a bigger advantage on COVID. And so it, it will be interesting to see, like, if McAuliffe beats his polls, let's say wins by six or seven or eight, there's a Fox News poll, for example, that showed him with like a plus 12 advantage on COVID. So if McAuliffe beats his polls and his margin is somewhere closer to where his numbers are on COVID, then maybe we can interpret and say, OK, COVID is still a huge, huge issue for voters. And whatever other misgivings voters in Virginia might have about McAuliffe, they're worried about someone coming in and being like, eh, COVID, no big deal, which is sort of the Republican position. If, on the other hand, Youngkin beats his polls and let's say wins by two, three, four, then maybe we can say, okay, maybe crime was a bigger issue for voters than we thought. All of that, though, is reading tea leaves. It's tough to do accurately and with any degree of certainty. And we're also going to get to see as well if the dynamics of the race change at all as the two parties, heavy hitters to some extent, kind of go in and campaign on the candidate's behalf. I know there's been some controversy slash conflict over Trump not going to Virginia to campaign for Yunkin. The DNC was airing ads in Mar-a-Lago over the weekend asking Trump why he wasn't going to Virginia to campaign on Yunkin's behalf. I think given our conversation here, it might be obvious why Yunkin might not necessarily want to be that closely aligned to Trump, but we are going to see Obama, for example, go and, and campaign in Virginia. And we'll see if as this becomes more of a nationalized race, potentially it's better for Democrats, but we'll see. Who knows if Trump will end up going. Just to add on to that really quickly, Galen, there was a great article in the New York Times. The headline was, Glenn Youngkin talks about Virginia. His base talks about Donald Trump. And the dynamic it was getting at is basically what you were getting at, which is Youngkin is a pretty good candidate. And he sort of has softened some of the GOP's sharper edges as far as more moderate voters go, as far as suburban voters go. So, for example, on on the critical race theory stuff, Youngkin doesn't talk about race, really. He just talks about parents should have a, a say in what schools are teaching, which is a much more palatable way to sort of say the same thing. But what that New York Times article was getting at is like, it's not only up to Yunkin. So a lot of the chatter we've seen from his base is like, this race is about Trump and it's about continuing Trump's whatever Trump is doing. So that's another sort of dynamic to watch is how much does Yunkin get to sort of set the, set the terms of the debate and how much is this just like replaying 2020, replaying 2016, replaying 2018. Democrats want a replay of 2018 and, and 2020, right? Yeah. All right. Well, we will watch over the next two weeks. And of course, we are going to have, you know, it's election day, just two weeks from now. It's That's right. It's been a really, year has flown by. I don't know, has it, time has become a mush over the past <laughs> year and a half. It has not flown by, Gaelic. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe last year's election just made such an impression on me that I remember it like it was yesterday, even though it doesn't truly feel as though it was only yesterday. You're right. A lot has happened since last November. But let's move on and talk about a related issue, which is Biden's standing with the public. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As we mentioned in the first segment, President Biden's standing with the public has deteriorated in the nine months since he took office. So according to 538's polling average, his net approval rating was plus 17 points when he was sworn in, and it's now net negative five points. So as of today, about 50% of Americans disapprove of the job he's doing and 45% approve. There's a lot to cover here, but I just want to ask the most blunt and obvious question first, which is, why has Biden's approval dropped so significantly? That is a tough question to answer, but I think it speaks to the fact that Biden's dip in approval was always more than just Afghanistan or COVID-19. Both in terms of withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, we saw a dip. And when we saw the Delta variant surge, we saw a dip in his approval. But now Afghanistan has faded from the headlines. His approval rating has not bounced back up. And as you mentioned at the outset, Galen, the number of new COVID cases is falling in the U.S., but we haven't seen Biden's approval number tick back up. It makes me think back to polling that Morning Consult had published earlier this summer, suggesting that among independent voters, Biden's support had dropped starting in April and that has continued and it hasn't ticked back up, nor has his handling of of the pandemic ticked back up among voters. Right now in our tracker, we show that only 50% approve of how he's handling COVID. And remember at one point, that was his best issue. Over 60% of Americans approved of the job he was doing. And it was never a one-to-one relationship. Not everyone who approved of how Biden was handling the pandemic thought that he was doing a good job as president overall, but there was clearly some overlap there. And now that overlap is gone and his overall approval numbers are kind of stagnating as a result of that. Yeah, the way I sort of think about it is that the mishandling of Afghanistan and the rise of the Delta variant sort of sped the demise of Biden's honeymoon period. I would put it that way because I think Had it not been for Afghanistan and had it not been for the Delta variant, it probably would have been something else. If you look at trends in presidential approval in recent administrations, the trend is almost always down. There are exceptions to that, but the idling state of American politics tends to be sort of marginally in opposition to the party in power. That's why we always talk about the midterm curse and and all that kind of stuff. So Biden entered office, I think he benefited a lot from what all new presidents benefit from, which is just like a diminishing number, but still some voters give give the new president the benefit of the doubt. Biden specifically, I think, also benefited from things feeling much more sane without Trump in there. He benefited from declining COVID cases, and he benefited from the economy was doing pretty well. Afghanistan, I think, just interrupted all that good news. So that was one big thing. And then obviously the Delta variant. So those were the proximate causes, but it's more about just the country returning to where it normally is. I think that's right. And like the other thing I would add to that is something that we've looked at in recent administrations is how much does the approval rating actually move? And so even though Biden's right now is at a low point, it still hasn't actually moved that much overall, similar to what we saw under Trump and Obama. So I think that's an important piece of context here, too. We're not talking about like a really drastic drop that is unusual in relation to other presidencies. The other reason this is important is it helps to explain why, as Afghanistan has faded from the news and as COVID cases have dropped, we haven't seen a rebound, right? Because when you look at Biden's approval, do you look at his high approval ratings to start as like the default position, all else being equal? Or do you look at his current approval ratings as the default position, all else being equal? And I think the reality is it's not one or the other, but it's closer to his current numbers or sort of what you would expect in modern politics. Do you expect that Biden's approval will ultimately mimic Obama and Trump's in the sense that there's a relatively narrow margin within which 
his approval rating moves even on his best or worst day? Or do you think that Biden is maybe more open to like swings because I guess in some ways he relied on swingier voters to get elected? Our working hypothesis has been more so that it will also move within a narrow range. And I think that's also reflected by the question Micah was posing. Like, is it the current rating we should kind of be looking at Biden now to see if that's indicative of what to expect or where he was at the beginning of the term? And like one thing I would caveat about the beginning of the term is even in relation to other presidents, his overall honeymoon was like pretty short lived and not that high to begin with, which speaks to just like how increasingly polarized we are. You know, like one thing we found very early on in splitting out strong approval, strong disapproval, was that Republicans just weren't willing to give Biden the benefit of the doubt, whereas previously, and this kind of started to taper off after George W. Bush, but the other party, so Democrats in that instance, gave him a higher benefit of the doubt than the out party currently gives someone like Trump. Democrats did not give him the benefit of the doubt. And you didn't see Republicans give Biden that either. Yeah, so I I would definitely expect it to move within a pretty narrow range. I mean, Biden, by dint of being a white man, maybe can win over some voters. Like we've seen his numbers deteriorate, for example, among white suburban men. Maybe he can win some of those voters back, depending on how things go. But you would expect the difference to be pretty marginal. But maybe there'll be some difference. You know, Biden is certainly not as strongly polarizing as Trump. But if you look at his strong approval and strong disapproval, it's not all that different. Yeah, that was going to be my other question, which is obviously Trump played a lot of base politics, which was energizing the people who already supported him in such a way that maybe even on his worst day or when things weren't going well, they would still strongly approve of him. If Biden doesn't play base politics in quite the same way, would that suggest that he has a lower floor in the sense that there's not as much red meat for people to constantly support him? Or blue meat in this case. I think there's this idea on the left that left-leaning and Democratic voters are sort of like less loyal to the team than right-leaning and Republican voters. Or to put another way, like that the way they would put it is to say they would judge Biden more on the merits than Republicans judged Trump on the merits. I actually asked one of our election analysts, Jeff Skelly, to look into this. Remember this, Sarah? Yes. And it basically was like, there's not really evidence for that. So I don't think Biden has a lower floor than Trump. That's right. I do think one interesting thing, and again, I think it's kind of a question right now of how long lasting it will be. And we are working on a piece currently around this, but at least among Black voters, particularly Black men, the Washington Post had a piece on this last week. The Cook Political Report has also written on this. Biden has seen a loss of support among those voters. And I think we'll talk here a little bit about the tensions the Democratic Party faces in terms of how it messaged itself, on what type of policies it tries to move forward. And so I do think there are risks to Biden. Maybe it's not the same way in which Trump dealt with his base, but if he's not delivering on things that he campaigned on and promised on, he could see a loss of enthusiasm more so among younger voters or voters of color who don't think that Democrats are delivering on promises they had made around racial discrimination in this country. Voting rights, yeah. So obviously we can watch the numbers tick up and tick down, but In reality, it only matters to the extent that there are consequences, either legislatively or electorally. So what are the consequences of a declining Biden approval rating? Does it make it harder to get legislation passed? Does it make it harder for Democrats to win elections? I think the thing we have the clearest answer on is the elections part. If we look at recent midterms, so from 2006 to 2018, the president's disapproval rating was higher than his approval. And in all four cases, the president's party lost a sizable block of House seats. It's the midterm curse, as Micah was saying earlier. And, you know, the last time that the president's party gained House seats in the midterm election was in 2002. And that was when George W. Bush had a really high approval rating because of what had happened on September 11th. And so I think that is the factor that is at the back of everyone's mind, particularly now that Biden's under 50 percent, is what will that mean for the midterms next year? 
I think something we've been talking about a lot internally is just trying to understand who is a midterm electorate. It's the fact that Democrats have more college-educated voters who tend to turn out in a midterm election. Will that make a difference here in 2022? And then also, you know, what will turnout look like? 2018 was a huge turnout year. 2020 was a huge turnout year. Will 2022 be the same? Will that have advantages for the party out of the White House or Republicans? Or will that actually have advantages for Democrats? In terms of Congress, I think it's harder to answer that question. There is research showing that the more popular a president is, the more that president can set the agenda for Congress. It's less clear if Biden were 10 percentage points more popular right now, would the Build Back Better bill and the bipartisan infrastructure plan, would they all of a sudden pass? I think that's harder to say. Let's take the specific case, actually. You could actually argue that Biden sinking approval ratings could frighten a lot of Democrats into trying to pass those bills more quickly. They know, given the nationalization of politics now, how closely their fates are tied to Biden's. So maybe maybe a sinking approval helps them pass those bills rather than hurts. But it's just harder to say. The relationship is much more complicated and, and much messier. Yeah, to Micah's point, like there's just not clear cut evidence that if Democrats do work quickly here to pass those bills, that that electorally at least will benefit them. You know, I I always go back to thinking about the Affordable Care Act. That's actually very popular now, right? It certainly, though, was not great for Democrats in 2010 after they passed it. They suffered huge midterm losses as a result. Yeah, this is a difficult question. And it's one that we asked during Trump's presidency plenty. But what would Biden have to do to improve his popularity if it's not clear that passing democratically supported legislation would do it? I think that's the wrong question. (laughs) No, I mean, that's the right question, Micah. (laughs) I think it's like, (laughs) under what conditions would we see Biden's approval rating potentially improve? Because you don't think he has control over it. I think he certainly doesn't have sole control over it and maybe has very little control over it. I mean, there's lots of research, for example, showing that the media plays a huge role in shaping how events are viewed by the public, right? So with Afghanistan, for example, I can't prove this, but one theory is that one of the reasons Afghanistan was so harmful to Biden's approval rating, Afghanistan on its own, it was a tragedy, right? But actually, a lot of voters don't pay all that much attention to foreign policy, however tragic. But you could argue that one of the reasons it ended up being pretty harmful to its approval rating is that it was coupled with the rise of the Delta variant. And those two things together gave gave the media a sort of narrative. And all of a sudden, the Biden administration was in trouble. Then add on to that, these really big bills didn't fly through Congress. And you have a trend. You have this like Biden administration in trouble. And what the research shows is that the media can be really powerful in interpreting events for the public. That's hard because what you're describing is the reality of what was happening in Washington and abroad. You know, I think Trump would have said constantly, why is my approval not going well? Well, it's the media's fault. What is the media covering? Reality. Well, Sure, but I don't think I would compare Biden to Trump. So, for example, let me retell the story of the last few months a little differently. Afghanistan was a mess and a tragedy. I think the media largely covered that accurately. These two big policies working their way through Congress, the Build Back Better bill and the bipartisan infrastructure plan, I could tell a story there just about, hey, these are two really ambitious pieces of legislation Democrats are working on how to pass them. That is not inherently any sign of trouble for Biden or the Democratic Party. It's just how legislation is done. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, on the Delta variant, I don't think anybody can legitimately blame Biden for the Delta variant emerging. And if anything, we've seen what's our best tool against the coronavirus. It's the vaccine. And we've seen Republicans and red states in particular lag in picking up the vaccine, lag in enforcing vaccine mandates. So you could tell an alternate story of all this where it's like Afghanistan was a huge, tragic screw up, but you don't stitch together the narrative in the way the media did and connect Afghanistan to the Delta variant, to the 
debate in Congress. I'm not saying that's a hugely more accurate telling of events, but you know what I mean? It's not as simple as saying like the media covers reality. The media tells a story about reality and makes a lot of choices in how it tells that story. For sure. Yeah, I agree that this is a hard question to answer and maybe not the right one. I think, though, what we have seen at least some Democratic strategists um, lean into is like not the it's the economy stupid, but it's COVID stupid. And that is something I think I am wrestling with understanding here is, yes, we saw this dual tick driving down Biden's approval rating driven by Afghanistan, driven by the Delta variant. But as we were talking about, you know, the number of new cases, hospitalizations, they are down. Yet Biden's handling of the pandemic hasn't really bounced back in Americans' eyes. And I think that just speaks to how complicated the pandemic is. It intersects with the economy. It intersects with how safe people feel. And, you know, when will things go, quote unquote, back to normal? You know, it seemed as if we were talking about polls earlier earlier on this podcast before the Delta variant about how Gallup polls were showing Americans were optimistic about the future. Now I think Gallup's done a poll that shows actually, no, wait a minute, we're not. And so I do think for Biden, it's less about like what he can do. I think he has rolled out a successful vaccine policy. He has pushed for vaccination in this country, but the overall trajectory from COVID maybe feels like it's closer to where it was in the spring before people were vaccinated than where it should be now that at least some percentage of the country is. And I think that's been difficult for his administration to navigate. So what conditions would we think would need to be in place for Biden's approval rating to rebound? I would think, as Sarah was just getting at, things continue to improve in terms of the pandemic and people sort of feel like their lives are getting back to normal. That's one. Two, the economy is humming along. There have been a couple speed bumps of late Again, this is all matters in how you tell the story, but we've seen stories about inflation. The last jobs report didn't meet expectations, all that kind of stuff. So COVID, the economy, you know, if you were just like trying to put circumstances in place to give Biden the best chance of rebounding, I think you would say Democrats pass the infrastructure plan, pass the Build Back Better plan. I'm curious, why do you say that? Because... Rightly or wrongly, I think the media looks at, is the party in control of Washington passing bills as a marker of success? But didn't we see Trump's approval go down significantly when Republicans had passed and he signed the tax cuts in 2017? But the tax cuts weren't popular. The infrastructure plan and the, and the Build Back Better plan are popular. So I want to be really clear, though. This is getting to like this whole this whole big debate that's happening online now. Is passing popular yeah. legislation the key to being popular? <laughs> yeah. And yes. what I'm saying specifically is, if you were just trying to arrange the world, if you're in the Biden administration, you're trying to arrange the world to give yourself the best chance of rebounding, then you would pass those bills, which is different than saying passing those bills guarantees okay. that your approval would would rebound. It probably won't hurt you. And there's the chance, coupled with some other things, that it helps you. Honestly, that I think is the best way at looking at American politics is the choices voters make. It's not a logical decision, like the way I choose, what am I going to have for for breakfast? It's like, what am I in the mood for? Is it healthy? You know, I'm like factoring all these things in. It's like falling in love, you know? It's more like that, which is to say like, you can't really kind of pinpoint one thing. It's, it's lots of things. So I should say here that, as you mentioned, this does get into a much broader conversation and debate that is playing out within the Democratic Party, in the pages of the New York Times, on Twitter, which is essentially a debate about popularism, the idea that has been proposed in some part by David Shore, but also by other people, who is a Democratic Party data analyst, basically saying that the way that you win elections is by proposing and passing popular legislation, talking a lot about it, and basically not talking about the unpopular parts of your platform really at all. And I know that we at 538 are doing some reporting and analysis and data collection on these questions of why do voters behave the way that they behave? And is popularism how politics works? You talk about popular legislation, you pass it, voters will reward you. You talk about unpopular policy and legislation, voters will penalize you. 
Or is there other stuff in the water, in the atmosphere? Is it branding? Is it identity? Is it individual politicians? All of these things. And so this is a conversation we're going to come back to when we do more of that reporting. But I am wondering from the starting point, Michael, you described it as love. I think that's actually maybe a good comparison. Do you want to tease that out a little bit more? And Sarah, do you have thoughts on this? Like what makes a politician or a party popular and rewarded by American voters? I am less convinced by the popularism argument. You know, it sounds good on paper, right? Pass popular things and voters will reward you. Except like we have seen throughout history that sometimes when a party passes really ambitious legislation that later is popular, it is not immediately perceived by voters as a good thing. I also think Ultimately, what we're kind of dancing around to, we're talking about voters that don't always vote, that turn out maybe every two elections or something. And what is it that picks up on their radar? Is it that Biden passed a historic infrastructure plan? I'm less sure on that front. And I think what we have seen is that this idea that this segment of voters that we're talking about kind of being moderate in their stances is a myth. You know, that's not true. These voters who are undecided often hold extreme idiosyncratic issues on policies. They're disengaged. And so I think, too, as we've seen this increased polarization in our country and so much of our politics defined by race and how we think about race, I think what we're kind of seeing in the limitations of the popularism argument is Democrats seem to concede, even critics of Shore seem to concede that the way in which Democrats talk about race alienates some segments of the population. But they still need to find a way to talk about race because Republicans are going to talk about it no matter what. And so what way can they do it so that it is something that the core elements of the Democratic base, which we were talking about earlier, like there has been a drop off among Black voters in terms of supporting Biden. What is it that Democrats could actually pass in terms of policy that would ensure that those voters feel that they are a respected and important part of the base versus just given lip service? And that's where I struggle with the popularism idea. Like if the Biden administration passes these infrastructure bills but doesn't pass voting rights, does that really matter to those voters? Is that enough to ensure their loyalty to the party and for them to turn out? That's where I think we don't have like a clear cut answer. It sounds good in terms of a strategy, like just do popular things. Certainly sounds better than doing unpopular things. But Trump did a whole slew of unpopular things while in office. And yet Republicans down ballot, at least in 2020, didn't do that bad. Yeah, this debate is really complicated because no matter where your entry point is, you have to wrestle with kind of a lot of assumptions. Like, okay, is talking about popular things good politics. Well, how do you define popular? Is it just the most popular four things on on your agenda? Popular with whom? A lot of these policies play differently with different groups in the electorate. The other thing, though, is like, does it matter in terms of what the country thinks of the Democratic Party and what the country thinks of Biden and what the country thinks of the Republican Party? How much of a role in that does what Biden says or what Pelosi says play. There's just so many assumptions baked into this idea. Look, all else being equal, it's probably better to do popular things than unpopular things and to say popular things than to say unpopular things. But it's just not that simple. It's not how politics works. You know, go back to the example Sarah brought up of the Affordable Care Act. That was net unpopular when it passed. But Obama went on to win re-election. They certainly suffered losses. Democrats suffered losses in in 2010, but then he went on to win. Would Obama have won re-election had the Affordable Care Act not passed? Would Democrats have lost so many seats in the Senate and House if it hadn't passed? I just think the answer to both those questions is it probably didn't have all that much to do with the Affordable Care Act. It's like, again, let's go back to the falling in love idea. When you fall in love with someone... (laughs) When you fall in love with someone. <laughs> oh, um, my God. Yes, do tell. <laughs> no. <laughs> when you fall in love with someone, you know, it has to do with them, but it has just as much to do with you. And it has just as much to do with, like, the circumstances under which you met and are meeting and are talking. So, like, if I were going out on a first date and, you know, I had a kind of a dating coach and they were like, hey, 
just say popular things. Say things that that we know this person you're going on a date with is likely to like. Will that make a good impression? Well, maybe. But what if those things are not authentic to who I am? Then it's probably going to blow up that on the road, right? So, Or what if like you smell bad, but you're saying popular things? No, exactly. That's exactly right. Or what if you've dated a lot of people and this person's not so bad. And so it's kind of like I'm trying to make a comparison to negative partisanship here because I think that's driving a lot of it. So yeah, what if it's like less about the popular things you're saying and that just in relation to the other options, the other fish in the sea, you're not so bad. And that's why that's a cynical view of love and it's a cynical view of politics. But I kind of wonder on this question of like, popularity versus how much is it actually animosity of the other side. So heartbreak, sorry to muddle the metaphor there, but I I do wonder that dynamic and how it plays in. Heartbreak and animosity and like the grass is always greener. So yeah, that's how politics works. We solved it. (laughs) We solved it. This was a beautiful metaphor. I think we're going to go into uh, production on dating advice with Micah Cohen very soon. (laughs) Looking forward to the call-in show. But as I already mentioned, There's a lot going on here, and this is something that we at 538 want to dig into more to see if there's things that we can measure empirically. Some of the things that were involved in that metaphor that we didn't name specifically is past voting behavior, even who did your family vote for, your personal identity, a party's branding and messaging and ability to create viralism in the the media ecosphere, regardless of some of these other things. Individual politicians. People who listen to this podcast may have a difficult time imagining how little many voters are engaged in the process. And as you mentioned, Sarah, when we talk about the middle, the moderate, the people who decide elections, oftentimes it's people who are not very engaged. It's people who both may hold idiosyncratic views and also people who don't pay a lot of attention to what the politicians and parties are saying regardless. And so it's a complicated conversation that we're going to have more of in the future with more data. But although maybe we may never get to a better place than Micah's love metaphor. We probably won't. There's not a single answer. It's like a constellation of forces and dynamics and, and counterfactuals. Also, it should matter. Do you believe in the policies? Are the policies good for the country and morally right? That should matter. And there's also the question of where does public opinion come from? Do things become popular because you talked about them in a way that made people agree with you? Or is public opinion a kind of set landscape that you have to maneuver around? I think the answer is it can be both of those things, uh, (laughs) but it depends on the issue and it depends on what year you're talking about. Anyway, we will be back with more on this. If you have questions, comments, thoughts on this debate, please Get in touch with us, but... Send your dating questions in on Twitter. We'll answer them. (laughs) Yes, we'll save them all for our holiday special, and we'll pre-record our podcast that's just Dating Advice with 538, um, and you can listen to that at your own peril. Hashtag 530 dates. Hashtag 530 date. That's five, three dates, to be clear. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're really branching out. (laughs) All right, let's leave things there. Thank you, Sarah and Micah. Thanks, Galen. Thank you. And up next, we're going to bring on our 538 THC correspondent. But first... People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. As anyone watching the current debates in Washington knows, the lawmaking process can be very messy, and history is full of examples of politicians writing laws that may not be fully grasped at the time and end up having unintended consequences. We've got something that may be an example of just that for our final segment today. So marijuana is currently illegal under federal law, even though it is legal in some states. However, according to reporting published by 538 Today, Congress may have actually inadvertently legalized THC, or the compound in marijuana that gets you high, back in 2018. Thanks to the 2018 Farm Bill, you can now fairly easily buy synthetic THC online or in some convenience stores, largely unregulated. And here with me to explain how that happened is 538 contributor Lester Black. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Galen. It's great to have you here. So explain this to me. How did Congress inadvertently legalize THC? 
in the 2018 Farm Bill, there was a provision that legalized what a lot of people call industrial hemp. And hemp was legalized because Mitch McConnell wanted it to be legal. Farmers in McConnell's home state of Kentucky have been calling for hemp legalization for over a decade. And since 2013, McConnell has been promising to do that. He really made it into a campaign issue. And there's this real misconception in America about what hemp is. Uh, When we say the word hemp, we're talking about exactly the same species of plant that we talk about when we say the word marijuana. We just have different words for different uses of this plant. Hemp is commonly made into fabrics, food, uh, and a lot of different uses. But the use that's most interesting to Kentucky's farmers and, of course, to McConnell is a compound called CBD, cannabidiol. This is a non-intoxicating compound that has real potential in the wellness supplement market. And McConnell really wanted CBD to be legal for his farmers to grow. So in that 2018 Farm Bill, he included that provision that really broadly defined hemp. This definition was so broad that it appears to have legalized hundreds of different compounds that can be made from the cannabis plant. One is CBD that most people are probably most familiar with, but it also appeared to legalize lots of strange and really mysterious forms of THC that we really don't know much about, but the hemp industry since 2018 has run with this loophole, and that's how we now have synthetic THC being sold in places like gas stations and in states where marijuana remains fully illegal. There remains no access to conventional THC, but now we have gummy bears full of synthetic THC. Well, I want to drill down on this for just a second. What exactly are you talking about? What is this synthetic THC that people can buy, and how specifically did this law make that legal? So this law, the 2018 Farm Bill, defined hemp as any cannabis plant with less than 0.3% delta-9 THC. This gets a little complicated, but delta-9 THC is the technical term for the THC that gets you high in marijuana. So the Farm Bill said you can't grow plants that have a lot of that conventional THC. But the Farm Bill included language that appears to have legalized all of these other compounds, including types of THC that are incredibly closely related to that delta-9 THC. So things like delta-8 THC are now seemingly legal. This is a compound that is almost identical to the delta-9 that most people know about and most people have consumed who consume marijuana, but it appears to be legal. And the hemp industry is really selling these products by first growing CBD, that wellness compound, and then they take it to a lab and they convert that CBD into THC. It's a fairly simple conversion to do, but to do it safely and correctly, you know, takes some actual professional chemistry. But what we have in America now is hundreds of thousands of acres of CBD being grown. And then a lot of that is being converted into these other types of drugs. And importantly, CBD is non-intoxicating. It's not addictive. There isn't a high that you get from it but you can convert CBD into these types of THC that can get you high. And when you say apparently legal, why is there some hesitation there? Is it out and out legal or not? It's not really that clear. What we know is that these products are being openly sold without any federal agency shutting them down. But the Farm Bill in 2018 removed this broad definition of hemp, and remember hemp is the same species as marijuana, this broad definition of hemp is no longer in the Controlled Substances Act. That means the DEA can't enforce rules against this type of plant. The Farm Bill instead said it's not in the Controlled Substances Act, it's not in DEA's purview, it's instead in FDA's purview, the Food and Drug Administration. But the FDA has really done almost nothing with any type of hemp product. So the FDA is is, is not really saying much. The DEA is saying, actually, that these drugs are illegal. It's the DEA's opinion they are illegal. But the DEA has not noticeably done anything. And now, you know, these sales are happening broadly and openly across the country without any federal enforcement happening against them at all. I'm curious, how different is this from other synthetic drugs that we've seen pop up online that have been sold across the country to sometimes dangerous effect for a decade plus or even more and have kind of 
outpaced regulation in terms of slightly modifying these synthetic drugs so that they don't fall under whatever the new category of regulation is. Like, is this part of that same story or is this truly Congress effed up on this one and made a whole bunch of drugs legal that it never intended to? It's really both. So it's definitely part of this world where chemists can do really interesting things to these molecules that will create seemingly new types of drugs that can still get you inebriated or high. But in this case, Congress just made this loophole so broad that these chemists, and many of them are really what you'd call underground chemists, these are not licensed laboratories, they're able to get away with making these drugs and then sell them. When we say synthetic cannabinoids, people who have followed this stuff for you know the last decade are probably most familiar with things called K2 or spice. And these are entirely lab-designed compounds that interact with the same receptors that conventional marijuana reacts with to make you high but they're lab designed. When we talk about Delta-8 THC is the most common of these hemp-derived drugs on the market right now, it's actually a naturally found compound. The cannabis plant produces very small amounts of Delta-8 THC. But the Delta-8 THC you buy in a gummy bear or a vape pen right now is made in a lab by converting CBD into Delta-8 THC. The Delta-8 THC is probably pretty safe. There's not been a ton of research, but it all points to it being very safe. The problem is when you convert CBD into Delta-8 THC, if you don't do it safely, you're going to create lots of byproducts. And that's what in our story for 538 we found. We tested some of these products and we found compounds that PhD chemists who are experts in this had no idea what they are. Because this synthesis is, you're having chemical reactions that are creating new drugs. So the Delta-8 THC is likely safe but we don't know about these other mystery compounds. And the hemp market is really quickly getting into new types of drugs. So it's no longer just Delta-8 THC, which is a naturally found cannabinoid. It's now also things like Delta-8 THCO acetate, which is entirely lab designed. We have no idea if it's safe. And the hemp industry is rolling out dozens of these new compounds. And it does look a lot like the analog drug work that's been done by you know, the black market for the last 10 years. The difference is the DEA can't seemingly do anything about this. So we have these drugs proliferating across the country. Uh, because of that farm bill. Okay, so now what's happening? Have lawmakers realized what's going on and are thinking of amending the 2018 farm bill? What comes next? Yeah, readers of the story will see that very little is going on at the federal level. None of the Congress people who passed this law or proposed this law wanted to talk to us about this. On the federal level, there is one proposed law from a few senators, including Rand Paul and Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden, that would force the FDA to regulate this. But this is a proposed law. It hasn't become law yet. And conceivably, if it became law, it would take years and possibly quite a few years for the FDA to actually get involved in this. So nothing quickly is happening at the federal level. At the state level, we have some states that are outright banning these drugs, like New York State has outright banned it. And in other states like California and Oregon are working to bring these hemp-derived drugs into their recreational marijuana markets where there is more regulation. But so far, we just have this patchwork of state laws where there's many states where these drugs are being openly sold. What does this whole experience tell us about the patchwork of state-level legal marijuana that we have in this country while still having a federal ban? I think what it really shows is that the cannabis plant is extremely complicated and that anytime we simplify the things down to one molecule, making laws based on one of these molecules or making laws based on misunderstandings of this plant, you get into real trouble. And especially when the federal government acts, you know, the federal government is a huge force. We see that with how CBD has become so common. That's because the federal government acted on it. And whenever the federal government gets involved with cannabis, it's going to make big waves. And when they do it in ways that are not fully informed or not really understanding the complexities of this plant, you're going to create waves that might end up with dangerous drugs being sold in gas stations in Florida. If marijuana were legal everywhere on a federal level, would it exacerbate this problem or would it ameliorate this problem? I mean, there's actually signs that if marijuana was just outright legal in every state, this problem would maybe go away. If you look where these drugs are, the interest is, is strongest in these drugs, it's entirely in states where marijuana remains illegal. It's in states like West Virginia or Tennessee or Georgia or Mississippi, places where someone can't go to a licensed dispensary and buy a conventional marijuana drug. 
So that data shows that if we were to just outright legalize it, this might become a lot less interesting to people to buy these synthetic drugs. Although, of course, we're talking about the unintended consequences of the federal government creating new laws. Do you see any unintended consequences down the pike if the federal government were to just out and out legalize marijuana? Absolutely. I mean, like I said, when the federal government acts, there's huge waves. And we already have a multi-billion dollar marijuana industry in this country with a patchwork of state laws. If the federal government got involved and said, we're going to legalize the whole thing, you would have a massive change in who is uh, really making marijuana, selling marijuana. Um, There's lots of concerns within the marijuana industry about what would happen if or when that happens, a federal legalization. So that might take care of Delta-8 THC problems, but it certainly would lead to huge other consequences uh, when places like Wall Street venture capital firms can now spend $500 million on on a marijuana company. Right now, they can't really do that. Once that happens, there's clearly going to be big changes in this industry and to this plant in this country. Okay, well, if we get closer to that moment in time, we will certainly have you back on to talk about what some of those unintended consequences might be. But for now, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Caitlin. And everyone can go check out and read the full report on 538.com. The article is titled, How Mitch McConnell Accidentally Created an Unregulated THC Market. That's it for today. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bedegary Curtis is in the virtual control room and is also on audio editing. Nash Consing is on video editing, and Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>